The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown to zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown podcast and radio show. Today, we're speaking with Melissa M. Barkey. She's a policy analyst and outreach coordinator in the Indigenous Policy Program at the McDonald Laurier Institute, and she works in acquisition, divestment, environmental site assessments, and abandonment reclamation projects, and has joined us today to talk about pipelines on Indigenous land. So welcome to the show, Melissa. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me to the show. Um, This is one of the topics that I'm very passionate about. So hopefully I can bring some education and understanding to the Indigenous, non-Indigenous communities. Awesome. Absolutely. And uh, I see a lot of of people protesting pipelines in the environmental community. And whenever I see it, I just think, oh, no, (laughs) because I know that if, let's say, for example, here in Ontario, if Line 5 shuts down, we're still going to need that fuel. And so you're going to put trucks on the road, you're going to put trains back on the tracks. um, And those are much, much more dangerous in terms of environmental spills. If you haven't heard of Lac Magantic, it's a terrible, terrible, horrible tragedy that happened in a Quebec town where an oil train crashed and it exploded basically um, and ended up killing a lot of people. It was very horrible. Um, So in my opinion, pipelines are the safest way not only for humans who have to live around them but also for the environment do you do you like agree or disagree with that at all i definitely agree that it's the safest mode of transport and the reason why i say this is because it's under the ground um it's not crossing any roads it's not on a railroad and it's under the ground where it can be monitored and it's not tying up traffic as you would a train, for example. And it's also environmental wise, it's one of the safest and most sound infrastructure that we have out there. And yes, there are spills. And yes, we do see things happening. And this is why reclamation and abandonment is important. And also with active lines, monitoring, you know, we can push for more of these and which would make it 100% more safer, and it would make it a faster, better mode of um, transporting our product. Yeah, absolutely. How, how is the monitoring system today for some of our Canadian pipelines? Do you know anything about how the monitoring system works? I can speak on a project that actually went through um, actually pretty close to my community. And when they went through their initial consultation, um, they were explaining the new technology and basically the pigs that ran through these systems. And they were telling us how with uh, with their new monitoring systems that they can detect a leak or corrosion right away. This round, It's basically a round ball. The minute they send it through the pipeline, they can detect it anything along the way, even the speed of the fluid. I mean, how they described it was much more technologically advanced than what we'd have seen 10 years ago. So it is getting there. It is getting to the point where we can monitor pipelines a little bit more safely. Mm-hmm. And that's really good too, because we don't want the spills because you're right, they can be bad for the environment. And I think that we have had some of them. Um, and so I think that that's kind of the main reason why so many people, uh, well, I think that people don't want them spilling on certain lands. And then 
I just think there's just such a stigma against pipelines. Like it's the ultimate evil, you know, and it's actually things could be a lot worse if you don't pick the pipelines, I think. Um, so yeah, just as someone who loves the environment, like I do, uh, I, I do choose them instead. And so it's just so weird for me to be this environmentalist and, and not hate them, I guess. Um, but so you did mention that, uh, that you do work on like the capping projects. So I do want to get to that, like kind of in the end. So like, what do you do with pipelines and, and, um, and things when they, when we're all done, but I want to talk a little bit about how we get these pipelines approved. And so you've actually worked on some of this stuff, um, but for your indigenous band, right? Yeah, well, actually, I worked on uh, quite a bit of major projects in private industry. And I've also been part of consultation projects uh, that ran through the Treaty 4 territory. Um, so I've been actively engaged on both fronts. Um, so I see what happens on the policy perspective. And I also see kind of what happens on a community level as well. So it's been really interesting having seen both of this because oftentimes if you're coming from a private company you're only looking at the regulations and getting the approval process and getting and adhering to the guidelines whereas if you're coming more from a community perspective you want to see the overall project but you don't want the technical pieces of it like you you want to see how it's going to look 10 years from now 15 years from now and coming from a small area, you know, these are important questions that are oftentimes raised from our elders and from community members. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, Treaty 4. So is that, is that where you are? That's where I grew up. Um, that's actually where my mom is from. Uh, she's from a small reserve uh, called Muskelgan First Nation. It's about an hour and a half north of Regina. So we're not quite a remote community like we wouldn't be considered a northern community we're just kind of in the middle of the province so it's kind of a unique area where there's potential for natural resource development and it's kind of puts us away from an urban area where we're kind of isolated so it's an interesting little area for sure mm -hmm. yeah nice so in your community like in the indigenous community that you live in are people kind of mixed on pipelines like do some people really want them to come through and other people really not like them or is there like a unanimous kind of feeling about them pipelines would come close to us um, we don't have any major lines that are running through the community you would see this more when you get closer to Regina mm -hmm. so if you're 40 minutes away um, 40 minutes north, there's probably at least 10 Indigenous communities that would be impacted. Um, you know, we support their decisions, whatever uh, they, wherever they decide to go with it. And most of the time, uh, they've been in approval with it, uh, you know, with proper consultation. They get to see the project as a whole, and they're not just looking at it just from within their boundaries and within their reserve. And they're also looking at you know, what can this project bring to my people? Like, can it bring jobs? Can it bring economic development? What can we do so that this project advances our community in a positive way? So I've seen very positive feedback in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. Like, there really isn't a whole lot of hesitation towards pipelines. Um, I think we're 
probably seeing it more on the BC side of things. And maybe it's because they're closer to the ocean. Like I don't understand some of their environmental concerns, but I do understand the pipeline part of it and how they've kind of enhanced it so that environmentally it is safer today than it would have been, let's say, 10 years ago. So there's a lot of advancement in in the tech. And like you were saying, the ball, like the monitoring ball that goes through it, like that's that's been developed a lot in, in the last few years as well. Yes. Um, another thing that I've, I'm seeing companies do as well is they're putting more monitoring stations like they're they're putting them a little closer together, whereas before we would have seen them farther apart. So having monitoring stations a lot more in between the pipes pipeline would you know, allow communities to become engaged. I mean, it would provide a few jobs along the way and it would just ensure the integrity of the pipeline as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think there comes like a little bit of pride as well. Like if you're working for a company, if they pay you well and treat you well, you know, it's like, okay, this is pretty good. Um, But yeah, I I have a, a Nishka sister and I asked her the same question. I was like, do you like do people from your community, do they support, uh, I think it was a natural gas line, the LNG, right? That was going out to Kitimat. Yes. So that would have went near them. And, and she was saying, yeah, I mean, some people support it and some people don't like, it's not, it's, it's not like all indigenous people are against pipelines, which I think some people in the environmental community try to like push. And I think that's like kind of weird because everybody has their own individual opinion and, you know, stake in it or reasons to like or not like it. Um, And so I just like to hear kind of the balance of it and make sure that, you know, we're not like judging people by their race in terms of like what what they want in terms of pipelines. Like it just gets kind of weird for me, you know, when we think of it in that. I think another thing that we're seeing too is a lot of misinformation because oftentimes environmental companies, uh, they don't know, they don't understand the mechanics of the pipeline and they don't bother to. So then what they're doing is they're feeding misinformation to certain communities. I think one of the biggest ones that I've seen out there was, like you said, with the natural gas pipeline, Um, you know, they came in and told some people that you can actually mix fluid in the pipeline. So they can tell you one day it's gas and the next day it's crude oil. Well, you can't do that. Like (laughs) these pipelines are specifically built for specific projects and are for specific commodities. And they're monitored in such a way that they would detect any issues in the line. So it's misinformation like that, that gets out to the communities that really makes them hesitant about it. Um, so if we can, you know, get operators in there and also telling their side of the story and saying, you know, it's this, like, this is some of the things that I've heard. These are some of the questions we were asked and these are the answers coming directly from the operator. So I think in terms of, you know, just consultation and bringing awareness, I think operators can definitely do a lot more of that and be actively engaged in these communities. And that may make a difference in people's perceptions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's nice to have information from many different sides instead of just one side coming in and telling you what to do, which I worry about. And I know some people are probably listening and getting really mad at me (laughs) for saying that I like pipelines, but they are the safest, most environmentally friendly way. And what I'm worried about is if you cut off the supply of oil and gas too soon before communities uh, and nations are ready, then we're going to have environmental disaster. Like, like we said earlier, you know, if line five shuts down, how are we going to get 
all of the propane to, you know, heat people's homes? How are we going to get fuel for Pearson? Um, well, we're going to truck and train them. And, the, and that's way worse for the environment. So you kind of have to like look into these issues a little more and make sure that we're fighting for the right things, I think. Um, but I'd like to hear more about the process of getting a pipeline approved. So do you think you could walk us through maybe it like a few kind of general stages of what it's like? Like, let's say a company wants to come in and put in a pipeline and then they have to cross some indigenous territories. Uh, so what is that process that they have to do to get it built? So there's a few different situations that can come about. Um, so the first thing is the pipeline actually running through the community. What we have to do as a community is that we have to go through a voting process on whether we want we're going to allow this project into our community or not. So this is called a band council request. It basically is a vote, a yes or no, and it goes forward from there. So if it was a no, we would go back to the company and say, you know, we didn't vote in favor of this. Or if it was a yes, we would take it back to the operator and say, okay, our community said yes to this. What are the next steps? So this is the first scenario. Uh, the second scenario is where the pipeline isn't running through the community, but it could be adjacent or it could be in a setback area. So for every pipeline in every project, there's what we call a setback where we look at a certain range. Uh, so whether it's one kilometer, five kilometers, it depends on the act that we're following. It'll give us that setback range. And this is where an Indigenous community could fall into. So this is where we go and do the consultation with them. We let them know this line isn't going through your reserve, but it is pretty close. You know, we kind of let them know what the community that it is running through decided on. And we go through this exact same consultation process with them. So we tell them, you know, everything about the pipeline from start to finish, what it would look like, how many years it would take. And at this point, see, this is where it gets kind of gray. They can either approve it or they can say, you know, it's far away where it's not really concerning to us. So they can take a different approach on this. But either way, we allow them to become engaged and we offer them the same benefits as we would the community it is running through. So in terms of jobs, um, in terms of training, we give them access to that. Um, and then we work alongside them because as a project, we'd rather have approval from everyone, you know, like we want to see this project go through from start to finish without any issues. And that's the end goal of most of these projects. The third kind of scenario that we can run into is if First Nations communities have rights, like on public lands, like whether they have timber rights or they're doing water monitoring for the province. So they're like crown, like the crown land. Yes, on crown land. Yeah. So they could be out there doing work already on something. And so we go through the process, the same process as consulting them. We show them where the line is. Uh, you know, they give us their concerns. We take all of this information in and it goes through the environmental process. Like if they brought up any concerns, is there a potential reroute? You know, this is where we kind of look at the amendments of a line. Like, do we need to push this farther away? So the engineering group would look at this and really determine if, they want to run through that certain area. Uh, once again, it's a consultation. You know, we work with these communities, we work with these different groups, and we come to a compromise. And this is what reconciliation is all about. You know, we try to find a happy medium for everyone. 
Now, the fourth situation that we're kind of seeing is communities that aren't really close to the pipeline. I mean, they may be hundreds of kilometers away, but they just oppose a pipeline because it's a pipeline. And what we've been seeing are activists from other communities coming in and kind of staking ground in and around the pipeline area or the buffer zone is what I'm going to call. And they oppose it. From my perspective, I don't really think they have a right to do that because this pipeline wouldn't have even gotten to the point of construction if they didn't have approval from everyone. And we're kind of missing that point. Like there's no way a pipeline would be granted the ability to construct, like to ability to start construction until they had this approval from everyone, like from every regulator out there. So for someone who's not from my community to come in and set up camp and say, no, this community opposes it when we already approved it through a band council request is very disrespectful. I mean, they're not speaking for us, but the media shows it as speaking for us, whereas our voices kind of get overshadowed and people don't tend to listen to us because we approved it. So now we're kind of the villains in this story. So this is kind of what's going on right now. And this is how it's approached differently. And these are the kind of scenarios that can come about, like just from working in industry, I've seen these scenarios play out numerous times. So this is kind of what's out there. And yeah, it it can be very frustrating for the operator, for the First Nations community. Once you get to a point of saying yes, it's very hard to go back and say no, because then you've already in communities, you've already started planning for that income. Like you've already started planning a new school. You've started planning on fixing your water issue. Like you've already kind you've already invested that money, even though this pipeline didn't get built yet. So this is the frustration that we're seeing out there. And as a First Nations person, either you're, you know, like we're kind of forced to be against it. And even that is wrong because now you're saying that, our um our wanting to be part of this project is is not valid in your view so now you're kind of attacking those who approve pipelines and those who say yes to them yeah and i think maybe blocking a little bit of prosperity and long-term jobs and and things that can can help with a lot of issues that are faced with like remote communities you know that are kind of isolated um i think it would you know it would be helpful um, but I, I get, like, I get the environmental concerns as well. So do you remember DAPL, like the Dakota Access Pipeline protest? That was like years ago, right? Yes. Um, so when that happened, I was actually living in BC and I was like, oh my gosh, you guys, please go home. Because I knew that if it didn't get approved, that it would probably, we would start looking at like the Kitimat area. I was more worried about it going through the Great Bear Rainforest than like, than South because I think it's like maybe more precious of an area, which maybe isn't fair to say to the people who, who live south of us, you know, who want to protect their own lands. But yeah, this is kind of when I got interested in the pipeline issue of like, ooh, I don't know if we want to, you know, start blocking these things because they're actually pretty good. And, and if you look at a pipeline map of Russia uh, going into Europe, it's pretty wild. There's a good National Geographic pipeline map of um, Russia going into Europe and um, there's a lot of pipelines there. There's a lot of pipelines in North America too. You can you can check out the pipeline maps. You'll probably be surprised if you haven't looked at a map already at how many pipelines there actually are. Uh, it's a lot. It's definitely a lot. So you you mentioned the cut and cap process. So 
What is that? So a lot of people aren't really aware of the reclamation process that goes on. Uh, so when we go out and um, start reclaiming a well site, we will do the well along with the pipeline, along with the any facilities that may be on that lease site. And it's a pretty intensive process. Um, you got timing wise, you have to time it all. You have to go through, you got to go through the consultation. You got to get landowner approval. I mean, there's, it's just as big as a process as you would be installing a new line. Um, so we have to cover every inch of that segment that's being cut. So if it's usually a lot of these well sites, they'll, the pipelines will tie into a major line. So it's a lot of these smaller lines that do get cut and capped when the well site is is done and no longer producing. So having worked in that group, it was really for me, like if you're talking about environment and wanting to take care of the environment, this is how you do it. This is the work that comes after it's produced. And people fail to acknowledge that. Like people fail to look at that and say, oh, it's just a well site and it'll always be that. No, there's actually a process after that comes along with it. And the reclamation of any site could take anywhere from five to 20 years, depending on the area. And in a lot of times, we've actually restored the land better today than what it was 20 years ago. Um, that's just how much work that goes into it. And mm. these operators don't get recognized for the tree planting that they do. They don't get recognized for bringing back plants that would have been there before but weren't. Um, these sites get fully, fully reclaimed. And and it's probably rewarding to see how well everything's restored, right? Like you were saying, it could be even better than it was before, which is pretty neat. So I imagine there'd be research into like what native plants go here, you know, what's going to yes. be best in this climate, what's what it's going to look like in 40, 50 years, that sort of thing, right? And these discussions happen with the landowners, like that we'll go in and we'll ask them, okay, how do you want this to look? Um, we're going in and we're doing this with the well site, with the pipeline, we're taking any facilities off. How do you want this area to look? And it's actually pretty neat to see the consultation process because they'll tell us exactly how they want it to look. And if they want to farm that area, we can let them know which areas they can farm. And um, after going through the assessment, we could tell them, you know, like nothing's nothing spilled on this area, nothing spilled on your land, nothing was damaged. You know, like once we're done this, you would probably only see the well site area sectioned off, but everything else you could use. Um, so that's actually a pretty neat process. And I would definitely do that again. Yeah, but the but the the oil can come from multiple places that are Yes. That's yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's all these smaller like if you look at a rural area, there's all these smaller lines that are out there that are connecting these well sites. Yeah. Um what we've seen in my career is that operators were no longer putting wells here and there. Um, what they were wanting to do was to capture this by either directionally drilling from one area. So that kind of minimized a second well that had to be drilled or they um, put them in a pad site. So then you would have one site with 10 wells, for example. So they really tried to minimize the amount of surface impact in their decisions to drill more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I uh, I forgot to mention one part too. So the reason I support our own oil and gas is because I think we should be transferring it the safest way possible, which is pipelines. But also, we get a lot of our, our oil and gas uh, from 
other countries who don't have very good human rights records. And so I would prefer that if I, you know, am putting gas in my vehicle because I have to go to work or whatever it is, that it come from a company and from a location that is supporting local communities and that is going through this process and benefiting everyone along the way. I personally think it's a very ethical process in our country, in Canada, and we use the cleanest tech and it's all about this process that you're describing, right? Canada definitely has one of the strictest environmental standards out there. Like you said, we produce our oil ethically. Um, We're not using, you know, we're not using child labor for anything. We're not, um, you know, the money that comes in from these projects actually goes out to communities, not only First Nations, but a lot of non-Indigenous communities benefit from jobs and they benefit from these projects. So it, it, Overall, I think Canada should be focused on Canadian oil and gas that's produced right here in our country. Yes, it might be a little bit more expensive, but that's because we're treating the environment with fairness. That's that's one of our main objectives. So if we're going to look at environmentalism worldwide, other countries should be striving for our targets and what we're doing. And we shouldn't be importing oil from countries who are doing less than us, because then that doesn't make sense to put all these rules on our own resources and not on other countries. Yeah, yeah, there's a standard, right, that should be met. And yeah, I I totally agree. Um, The last thing I wanted to ask you, uh, I know that you've made some comments on uh, UNDRIP, So if you haven't heard of this, it's the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Uh, And we have a Canadian bill at C-15 that is uh, is working on on this declaration. Um, So how does that affect pipelines? It's going to impact any project, um, not just pipelines in a big way. Um, And the reason why I say this is because the bill isn't very clear on who you need to consult. So when I kind of spoke earlier of the different scenarios that we can come across, it doesn't specify, like if a pipeline runs through a reserve, for example, it's not specifying who is consulted on this process. Um, Is it the reserves and their elected chief and council? Is it communities who aren't touching these projects but are within a buffer zone? Are they, is it for the activists that choose to come into our communities and say, we don't want this. So it's it's created this massive gray area. And as a First Nations person, it leaves me in the dark um, from an operator's perspective on who is to be consulted. Like, who do we get the yes from if UNDRIP is in, in law? Like, it's just going to create a lot of chaos. And um, before this bill goes into legislation and before it's um, enacted, they really need to go back and address who is speaking for who and before it goes any further, because it's, for me, it's actually a pretty scary perspective come, for someone to come into my community and say, no, you guys can't do this. And under, under, if I can say this and enforce it. So it's going to cause chaos if they don't get, get some of these amendments addressed. So you mentioned the certain groups that you're wondering who you'd consult. So right now it's basically the elected chief and council that is typically consulted by an oil and gas company when they want to put a pipeline through that territory, right? Yes. Yeah. The good thing about our current system, though, is that we can vote 
you know, differently mm. next time. Yeah. Um, so that's the whole thing with diplomacy, even on a reserve, if we don't like achieve, we can vote them out next term. And that gives people a sense of, okay, like, we're not agreeing with you. We're, we don't like the way you ran things. You know, we kind of like this person, he's coming in with a better view on all of this. So it gives us that, you know, that, that feeling that we can change the situation. We're not stuck with it for years and years. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where I stand on it. Yeah, it's a very interesting conversation, and I'm happy to learn uh, a lot more about pipelines uh, that I didn't know. So that's cool, and I hope that if you're listening, um, that you learn some too. I think there are other things that we should be fighting that you know would make a bigger difference for the environment. And I think you know pipelines are the safest uh, for people, for communities, and for the environment. And also, you know, if you just have this like no oil, no gas whatsoever. Um, you're going to fling people into absolute poverty and chaos. You know, like if you just switched a switch right now and there is no more oil and gas, you would have no clothes, no transportation and no food. And like, if you don't have food, it's, it's chaos, starvation, like really, really bad stuff. Right. So we just have to kind of keep this all in check uh, to make sure that our environment's clean. People are taken care of, but you know, just switching off the switch is is going to be a bigger disaster. And what I mean by that is, you know, if I don't have propane anymore, I'm just going to use wood. And then I'm going to go cut a forest down and put a bunch of smoke in the air. And so so are the other 36 million Canadians. And everybody living in cities is going to have to put wood into the, the heating systems to heat their apartment buildings and stuff, you know? Like, we have to be very careful uh, about demonizing stuff that's really the lifeblood of of a lot of what's happening here in terms of modern society. So uh, do you have any closing thoughts, Melissa? No, I think you've said it all. Like it's our lifeline. Like it's something that we're going to need for generations to come. Now, if we can figure out how to bring all of our operations up to an environmental standard that meets everybody's expectations, then that's where we're going to go. Like we need to come up with technology that's going to make the lifespans of these projects a little bit longer and make it safer for all of us. And I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's really good. Um, well, this has been great. So thanks so much uh, for coming on here and, and teaching me the process of getting a pipeline approved and how it's really important to hear what indigenous communities want and how they feel about the pipelines, whether they are going right through their community or, you know, maybe close to their land or a water supply or something that's like important, you know, and how it can benefit the communities in terms of maybe getting better water infrastructure. Cause we have a big problem in Canada uh, that our water is not that great in Northern communities and it could be better. Um, so there are lots of different things. So yes, you might be upset that I'm uh, that I'm pro pipeline. I get it. I understand. Um, but it, it's just as important uh, to get this other side of the story out. I think. Um, So thank you, Melissa. Yeah, you're welcome. That was Melissa M. Barkey. She's a policy analyst and outreach coordinator in the Indigenous Policy Program at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast.